You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300 house races are non competitive If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway. People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us. And welcome in for episode number two of Snap Hook. I'm Tim Costello. He's Scott Barzilla. All right, folks. Today's episode of Snap Hook has been brought to you by the letter W, the number seven, and astroturfing. That is going to be, it's not a new term. I want to be like our ex-president and say I made it up. I did not make it up. It, it's a uh, John Oliver's covered it in detail on his show, but uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about. Today, and, and, so. and real quick, Scott, too, because when you when you brought that term up to me, um, I wasn't familiar with it, and so um, why don't we kind of go over what is astroturfing? And you know, as as Houston people, a um, little background on astroturf before you get into what astroturfing is, and I think that'll help people understand it. Um, you know, when the Astrodome was built, it was the first ever indoor baseball stadium, tinted windows, tinted glass, sun wasn't getting through, grass starts dying in the outfield. Uh, they untint the glass, and um, players are gonna, you know, getting hit with baseballs in the air. They try different colored balls. Long story short, they need to come up with a solution for fake grass, something that looks like it, plays like it, Almost smells like it, but it's not real grass. And lo and behold, AstroTurf is invented for the Astrodome, uh, thus changing the landscape of footing everywhere uh, across a variety of different sports. And so that is AstroTurf. Uh, for those who may not re- remember it, you know it's different than field turf. It was it was rock hard. It was like you know carp- carpet under concrete, um, but but that was AstroTurf. Yeah, so astroturfing basically is kind of a play off of grassroots movements. And, you know, when you're in politics, you know, really the holy grail, what you want is a grassroots movement. You want the people to bring the issues forward. And so what happens with it, with an astroturf issue, and this is something, and, and sorry to pick on the right here, but the, the right does this really, really well. Basically, somebody introduces a new issue that does not exist. They pump it, they pump it, they pump it. Then all of a sudden people start talking about it. And then they go like, oh, look at how many of these people were talking about it. And it's like, yeah, that was you. You're the one who brought this up. So, you know, we have a few fine examples. And, and, and we mentioned John Oliver's show last week, and he did an episode on this. Um, and, and all of his shows are really excellently researched uh, and performed, obviously. And so I, I invite anybody who doesn't have HBO to, to look him up on YouTube and look up AstroTurfing and John Oliver because he does a really good job and he's a whole lot more entertaining than we are. Um, but basically, if you look at in the direction I think that we talked about in the rundown is obviously CRT 
is probably uh, critical race theory is the biggest grassroots issue in recent time. And so this was brought on by a guy who came on Fox and he comes on Fox News and he sits there and says, well, we have this problem with critical race theory. They don't even tell you what critical race theory is. I don't even know if he knows what it is. But all of a sudden, everybody is starting to worry about it. You've got all these people who are going to school board meetings and they're screaming and yelling about, you know, we can't teach critical race theory. And so here's what happens with astroturfing. So are we teaching critical race theory? We covered this last week. We're not. So if a school district says we're going to ban critical race theory, okay. <laughs> but what happens is, is what the changes that they want to make, they slide in under this. And so this is some of the changes we were talking about with curriculum uh, specifically, uh, but also some of the other changes, like they want to start banning certain books and you want to do, uh, and you want to change how we teach, particularly U.S. history, but also world history and things like that. And those are the changes that they know that nobody really, really wants to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to fold it over into CRT stuff that people are screaming about because you're the one, you're the ones who basically gin this up and started this fire in the first place. Yeah, it's it's a way of taking history out of classrooms that parents don't want to answer question about when kids come home is the way that I look at it. You know, especially as we have a, a large generation of parents who grew up in that, that civil rights movement, you know, grandparents did some things that were questionable. You know, I, I love my grandfather to death, but some of the words that came out of his mouth were inexcusable. Um, but at the end of the day, you have a, a group of people who don't want to be held accountable in the history books. They don't want to have to answer some of these questions that their kids are coming home with. And, and at the end of the day, you know, a good teacher opens up a, a child's mind to where they should come home asking questions. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. You're not going to learn everything you need to know in an, in an eight-hour school day when there's 30 kids in a class and one teacher, right? But you're going to be exposed to new information that you're interested in, and then you're going to want to go down a path with that information to, to learn more. And to me, that's what the best teachers do. So when, you know, these certain politicians are out there talking about CRT, they don't want kids coming home and going down that path, right? The information isn't being passed in school. As, as I feel like any educated person understands, we're not teaching CRT to our publicly educated, you know, anyone even in high school, you're not getting that class. Um, but what you might get is your mind open up to an aspect of history that maybe you weren't aware of. And then you go listen to a podcast and you're learning more about that. And then you open your mind up and realize, wow, you know, there's a lot of aspects of, let's say, the Civil War and Reconstruction that we didn't learn in school. I'd like to learn more about that. And they don't want you learning more about that. They don't want you learning why our country is set up the way that it is and, and why certain entities are in power. And they don't want that. They don't want people digging into the, the history of the United States too deeply. Um, you know, I've, I've long felt America's is the world's greatest propaganda story at the end of the day. Um, you know, a lot of, of things that happened in history are, are washed away, and we're, we're left with this great, fantastic tale of, of these mythical founding fathers who, um, you know, came together for liberty and freedom of religion and, 
you know, you know, they didn't really own slaves, and even if they did, they, you know, they were good to them, and you know, there's always a uh, an explanation that we have for our ethos in in America. And at the end of the day, long story short, here, um, we're trying to prevent kids from going down that path of self enlightenment and self education and topics that they're interested in. Well, and so just to ask you a basic question: Did y'all learn about Black Wall Street? Absolutely not, class. but I I learned about it on my own through uh, a podcast that I listened to and was shocked that I'd never heard of the, the Tulsa Massacre. I'd never heard of any of that stuff. And what's crazy is, is now, so what we're doing in Texas is we're going to take the Trail of Tears out of the U.S. history textbooks. And we're going to say that the Cherokee went to Oklahoma voluntarily. I mean, that's just, that's not what happened. And so, and, and I, and I got my degree officially in political science, but I was more or less a, a history double major, because uh, in the state of Texas, you have to have 24 credit hours in two different teaching fields in order to, uh, to get your teaching certificate, at least back when I was uh, going through. And so I know a lot about history. Nobody ever taught us about Black Wall Street. And, and there's a lot of things that people didn't teach us. And I was a history major. I mean, I know, you know, quite a bit about this stuff. And, you know, I taught this stuff. And so what's going to happen is, and this is, the, and this is the problem, is today it won't be such an issue. Because the teachers that are teaching history right now, they know all these things. Because they were taught those things. But say 10, 15 years down the road, when you start getting your new crop of teachers, what exactly do they know? And, what are they and I think eat? it's going to be interesting too, Scott, where I don't know if it's it's going to be as impactful for the teachers at the high school level, because uh, especially if you're a history teacher, I feel like eventually when you get to college and you you know major in history, you do specialize in some sort of period or history and, and, and you take some advanced history classes on United States, you know, 1820 through 1865 or, you know, whatever that, that time period is. It'll be interesting when, when laws like the ones that DeSantis passes in Florida, you know, as they continue to roll out there in other in other hard red states, I feel like Texas is going to be next there, um, banning the teachings of certain things, banning books on college campuses. I think that's when you really have to be worried about those future educators because they're not going to be able to take some of those specified um classes on certain periods of history that allow them to to teach it properly to kids because at the end of the day you know the united states is a blip on the the planet earth and even then you know that's 300 years nearly of history as as you know a country then you got to go to you know our time as a colony that's four you know 350 400 years of history and a majority of the things that we were taught in school are, are just the the tip of the iceberg you know there's uh, one of my favorite podcasts is all about things in american history that you would never learn in school but they're all true they're all fantastic and quite frankly some of them are hilarious but they are you know not things that necessarily uh go along with supporting the narrative of of our country you know like i one of the things did, in school did you ever teach the story of, of smedley butler and the uh, the gentleman's over attempt to overthrow the government with the gentleman's plot or the, the gentleman's coup? Nope. 
It wasn't a pretty important coup. moment in history, right? Where like they tried to install a, a second president yeah. and have a fascist coup in our country right before World War II, and that was never mentioned. Well, so here's and when it gets down to it, and and I make no bones about this. I'm a middle aged white guy. I'm a middle aged white guy that grew up in Clear Lake, Texas. And, and for those of y'all who are not familiar with the Clinic area, I mean, it is about, you know, one of, one of our uh, common friends, she refers to it as the bubble. Because, you know, not much penetrates uh, Clear Lake. And, and what's funny about Clear Lake is that, you know, we don't have any drug problems or gang problems because, you know, the school board and the school administration have determined that we don't have those problems. Of course, you and I, probably both know people in high school who were actually using drugs and were maybe involved in some of those legal activities, but they didn't see it happening. And I bring this up because as a teacher, I don't have that experience. I can't, I can't talk to you intelligently about what it means to have somebody be racist against you. That's ridiculous. However, I did have somebody I graduated with and she actually kind of spurned me to start my blog because we were talking about, I think it was George Floyd, and it was a Facebook post. And she talked about the fact she, you know, she got her law degree. I mean, she runs her own business. She is widely successful, but she also happened to be black. And she is afraid for her son because her son is now about the same age as my daughter, and, you know, which is 16. And so she's afraid of what's going to happen. He gets pulled over. And I don't know if you knew this. Uh, in, in your degree plan now, if you're graduating from high school now, you have to complete what is called the FAFSA form, which is uh, for financial aid. And they also have a program called Flashing Lights. Every student has to go through that program. And you could probably guess what flashing lights means, but for those of you all who you know, can't figure it out, it's what happens when you get pulled over by police. What do you do? We're teaching every single kid that. And she is having to walk through with her son. This is exactly what you do if you get pulled over. This is what you don't do. She's highly successful. This is not a socioeconomic thing. She's upper middle class. She lives in Clear Lake. We're in the bubble. But she has to have that talk with her son. And I, I, I can't talk about that experience. It's not my experience. But we need to be able to teach our kids so that they can understand that this is some people's experience. And even through today. And if we're not allowed to teach that, then you're going to uh, just walk through, people walk through life, have no idea that this is going on. Yeah, for me it was it was tough because as you said, that, that Clear Lake bubble was real. Um, it, it's almost, yeah, um, do you remember that movie? It was Welcome to Pleasantville where, uh, it, it, and, and that's a big exaggeration, but that's, you know, that's kind of what Clear Lake like. There was, there was limited crime, limited exposure to it at least. Um, I'm sure there were drug problems at Clear Lake High School. Like, I mean, I know kids for sure walked into the woods and smoked weed and, and came back afterwards. That's why they cut our lunch to, to 30 minutes so they wouldn't have time to do that anymore. But, I mean, other than that, like, you didn't really see anything uh, too badly. But, you know, then I was, I was fortunate enough to uh, – I started my education at St. Mary's University 
uh, in San Antonio, Texas, where, you know, for the first time in my life, I was the minority. That, that campus is 76% Hispanic, um, and I literally was in the minority, and it opened me up, and it opened my eyes up, and, you know, I ended up joining a fraternity where literally, like, I was the only white guy in my fraternity, um, and I, I got to see the other side of things a little bit more, and obviously a lot of the things that happened to them never happened to me, uh, and, you know, luckily even running from, from campus cops, when, when one cop had to make a decision of who to go after, you know, they never went after me, uh, and, and so... Yeah, it was only underage drinking, but, you know, still it was, they had a decision of who to go after and, and I got away and the other guys didn't. So I, I don't know what that says about policing, except, you know, it's, it's, it's systematic through, through the entire, um, system. And it's not, it's not just policing, it's our society today. And, and again, getting back to, to the astroturfing, it's, they're going to try and tell you that's not the case, right? Because at the end of the day, they're going to point to your friend. And they're going to say, look, you're successful. You you own your own business. You're a lawyer. What are you, what are you talking about? You know, as long as your son doesn't commit any crime, um, you'll be fine. There's no issues there. And it, it's sad to the point where, you know, God forbid if something happens to anyone, all the police have to do is yell the term, stop resisting on body cam, and now you've committed a crime. You're resisting arrest. It doesn't matter if you actually are or even if you just cover your face while you're getting kicked the crime is resisting the officer and now they can do whatever the hell they want to you. And it's on body cam that they yelled, stop resisting. And th- you know, those are the things that they're trying to get us to look away from. You know, they're trying to throw fake statistics. They're trying to, um, you know, not teach certain things. They're trying to get us to look at the police in a certain light. They're teaching kids in school how to interact with the police instead of maybe working on how the police interact with us. They instead put a class in school so kids can already be terrified the moment you're pulled over by the police. You're, you're scared. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you uh, if you're a South. Oh, big time. Or not. Uh, yeah. So there, were one of the early. I think it may have been first season. Uh, so you had Jimbo and his friend, and they were hunters. And apparently, they had a new rule that you couldn't just shoot animals. You could only shoot animals if you were protecting yourself. And so what they would just, they would just see a deer, he's head right for us. And then they just start shooting. I don't know if you remember the, you know, those particular ep- early episodes. I think it was the one where they were trying to teach the boys. how. I to don't fight. think, I, I don't remember that one. I, I do remember yeah. the, their, when they did the George Floyd episode and like Cartman stood in the street and drew a circle of spray paint around himself, then antagonized Token until Token ran into the circle of spray paint and he shot him. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> um, and so really when we took, when we looked at astroturfing, there's really two directions we're going to go here. And, and there, there, it's a lot of current events and one of them is going to be an issue that's going to affect, you know, Tim and I more, you know, because, you know, he's married to a teacher and I am a teacher and that's the, the issue of school vouchers. But then of course we also have the elephant in the room, which is, you know, the events that happened in Memphis, you know, just in these past several days. And where astroturfing kind of comes in again is what we is when we start throwing out numbers and we start throwing out narratives that are not real. So just to give you an example, we talked about this on Twitter, and this is the question. and I, And I don't have an easy answer, and there are no easy answers to this question. But the U.S. population has thirteen point six percent African Americans. 
if you look at police shootings of suspects, just shootings, this is not, you know, when we beat somebody to death, have to get that out there. 26% of suspects who are shot and killed are African-Americans. So basically two times the population. So the question you have to ask yourself is why? And that's, you know, and they don't want to, they don't want to ask that question. They certainly don't want to answer it. So what they want to tell you is they want to tell you, well, more white people are killed in custody than black people. And it's like, well, yeah, we make up like 60% of the population about. So what are we talking about here? So again, we bring that back. Why are black people more likely to die in police custody than any other group? Why is that? I don't think you can answer that any way other than the system is broken and the system is inherently racist. Um, you know, especially here in the South. I, I, I think obviously it's not only in, in the South, but a majority of the way our police are set up historically come from the enforcement of Jim Crow laws. And, and how those were enforced around the, the nation after um, Reconstruction, and even before that, catching runaway slaves. That is how our police systems in the South were set up. In the North, they come a little bit more from, um, you know, protection of property and, and private security firms that eventually uh, they wanted to shift that onto the public instead of paying for it themselves. But down South, it, it comes from enforcing Jim Crow, and it comes from catching slaves. And then if you look at the victimization of the black community as we continue on, you know, it's, it's been a way for police forces to continually get money out of the United States government while showing they are doing, quote unquote, something and not affecting, you know, the wealth. And so at the end of the day, you, you blamed the black community for crack. And you use that as an opportunity to go in and arrest and kill a lot of African-American young men and, and lock them away. And then after that, it was gangs. And you use that as an opportunity to not only go in and do that, but now we're going to create super task force within those police units to tackle gang activity that, for the most part, wasn't existent at the level that they said that it was. But it was a way to get more money for the police force, attack members of the society that are underrepresented in Congress and don't have the means to uh, make public what's happening to them in a way that's going to affect change. And it's been a way to victimize a part of society that people sadly don't care enough about. And all that gets more money for the police department. You know, it, it, everything that happened with George Floyd, everybody was outraged. It was terrible. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is kneeling and, and with all the other Congress people. And then they went and gave the police more money. They went and gave them more money on the budget. After all of that, they still have tanks. They still have, you know, protective shields and riot gear and all this other stuff. They have, you know, tear gas. They've got rubber bullets. They've got everything you could need to start a war. And why? The question there is why? Well, well and, here, and here bringing this back to the astroturfing thing, and this is you know, a thing that I had mentioned to you and I had uh, forgotten until we just got here. But when I was in my teens and 20s, and this is how pervasive this is, my answer to that question would have been, 
well, black people commit some more crimes. Because that was the narrative. And, and how much of that comes and from so, Hollywood and our, our daily consumption of the cop drama where the cop's always the good guy? You know, I, I think that is a big, big issue with the with the astroturfing, especially with police, is how they're portrayed on television and how they're portrayed in film as they have a hero saving the day and a hail of bullets getting the bad guy taken out and, you know, getting the job done all by himself. Uh, um Die hard style, you know? Well, here's it, and here's the thing, and this is to me, this is disgusting. So, we take our typical people Sean Hannity can't say this, Tucker Carlson can't say this, Laura Ingraham can't say this. So, what are we going to do? We're going to go out and we're going to bring on Jason Whitlock, we're going to bring on Candace Owens, and they're going to tell us how. Black people commit more crimes, and that's why more of them are dying in custody. Because we can't accuse them of being racist because they're black. And I certainly can't say it because, you know, if I'm Tucker Carlson, because people already think I'm racist. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring on this stooge who I, I don't know what, I guess they're getting a lot of money. Of they're getting a lot I mean, of I money. Guess, I guess so. But, you know, how, how much money do you really need in order to, you know, basically, you know, sell yourself out and sell out, you know, your entire race? And it's I, gotten I sadly to the point, and I'm, I'm not going to say the district my wife teaches in, but there is a member of her school board who is a black man who ran and won on an anti-CRT platform as a Republican. Um. And no one, uh, right? No one can question him on that. Is, is the is is the thought process? How can we say that he doesn't know what's going on? Well, you can ask what he's getting out of that because now he's elevated on a political. He's elevated in the political world. He has a seat on one of the best school boards in the state of Texas, and now he's going to use that platform to continue to elevate himself. And when he sleeps in meetings, he doesn't do anything. He votes against anything positive. And all, and he's trying to investigate teachers who quit before their term is up, and they, and he wants to know why they're quitting. Well, it's like hold the mirror up, bro. Well, and, and this kind of segues into our into our topic of school vouchers because that's basically the direction that conservatives want us to go, and they know that school vouchers on their own are not very popular. So if they could convince you that all these public school teachers are teaching CRT, they're grooming your kids, uh, they're, you know, they have drag queens coming in and reading to them, and they, they're, you know, trying to teach them to be you know, LGBTQ and all this, that, and the other. So now we can talk about the whole idea. And so, and I wanted to walk through this very, very carefully, because there's, there's lots of little nuances here. And there's what we can term school choice. So some districts, what they do is they set up magnet schools within their district. And so those magnet schools you can apply for and you, uh, and you can apply to get into. And what I can tell you is in my career, I'm teaching right now at a school that we get the best of the best. And our test scores are the best in the district. Duh. I've also taught a private school, taught a Catholic school. 
And I was an elementary counselor in a magnet school that was the last choice in the district. And what I can, and the problem with vouchers, and, and we can start off. And so vouchers, they talk about them going to either, you know, magnet schools, they talk about them going to charter schools, they can also go to private schools. Now, I want you to try to, you know, figure this out since, you know, you grew up Catholic. How much does a Catholic education cost? Well, I know, I don't know about Catholic exactly, but I know I looked into trying to go to Lutheran South um, simply for athletic purposes when I was in high school, and it was $10,000 a year. And that was, don't mean to age myself, but we'll call it, uh, you know, 17 years ago. Probably 15 to 20 grand nowadays for a year of schooling and that's probably on the low side or at least the medium side i'm sure there's 25 dollars a year institutions out there as well my 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 sister teaches at uh, a catholic school in houston i won't name it just you know but their tuition is about twenty five thousand a year it's all girls school so you know so the federal government or the state government or the federal government, whichever one, we'll say Greg Abbott. We're going to give you five thousand dollars towards your education. Where does that get I'll you? Get you nothing. We'll get you a twenty thousand dollar bill unless, instead of twenty five thousand. Unless you already have the money to send your kid there, and hey, it's a free five thousand dollars because I was going to send my kid there anyway. So, but here, but here is the issue, and this is where I get to my my last example, where I was a counselor at at the last choice. These are all public schools. These were all within the district, so you don't pay any money to go to these schools. The problem you have is that you have, if you have a private school, or even a charter school. The reason the campus I'm at. Right now, the reason why we have the best scores in the district, I could sit there and say we have the best teachers in the district. I think we have a lot of really good teachers. That's not why we have the best scores in the district. The reason why we have best scores in the district is because we get to pick our students. If you have, you know, if you're profoundly disabled, you're not coming to our school. If you had, if you've been a huge discipline problem, you're not coming to our school. It doesn't matter how much money you have because it doesn't co- we don't take any money. And so that's what happened when I was at the elementary school is that we had to take in all the kids that were low learners that had probably had some behavioral issues because no other school would take them. We were the last choice. And so even if Greg Abbott were to sit there and say, I'm going to give you $25,000, he can't afford that. He can't give that to every, you know, every, every kid in the state of Texas. But let's say he did. Let's say he found a pot of gold that was worth a trillion dollars. Fantastic. Everybody has $25,000. There are some schools, particularly the private ones, that might not take you. Because if you, and, and when I was at the Catholic school, this is, we could not take any special ed students because we didn't have any mechanism to support that. We told people, hey, we had a, one of my students was dyslexic. I knew she was dyslexic. I'm not a dyslexia expert, but I could see it. But we told them, you're going to have to go to HISD in order to get tested. 
We didn't have an apparatus to do that. So if you have any issues, I mean, you remember, you know, everybody just watched Forrest Gump. That's the way private schools operate now. If you remember the beginning of the movie, the guy comes in and says, your son's IQ is too low. He's going to have to go to a special school. That's the way public schools used to work before the 1970s when we passed laws that said that everybody has a right to go to school. Well, whenever you start doing vouchers, the thing is, is that even if I can afford it, there might be schools that don't accept my child for one reason or another. And the fact that in, if you're the government, you can't tell a private school that you have to take this person because then they cease to be private. Because the whole beauty of a private school is I get to set my own rules. I get to teach my own thing. And I can, you know, there's that school in Florida that actually told teachers you cannot be vaccinated. And they told teachers that if you're vaccinated, you're fired off the staff. It was, you know, the craziest thing in the world, but they're allowed to do that because they're private. Now, charter schools are technically public, but they also can kind of set their own rules. And the thing is with charter schools is some of them are very, very successful and some of them aren't. Like for every KIPP Academy, and KIPP Academies are great, there's one that might close next week because there's so little oversight over them. And so if you're going to give me money and I'm going to take my kid, I, I'd like to be able to know that that school's going to stay open through November. I mean, but you, in, in a lot of states, you can't guarantee that. Because there's no no oversight of those schools. It's an it's an interesting conundrum because I, I don't think anyone will sit here and tell you, especially here in Texas, that our education system does not need updating. Right? It's it's antiquated. It is underfunded. It's out of date. But as per usual, they are wanting to throw money at the problem and not even in the in the correct ways. If you took all the money that Greg Abbott wants to give to every student to give them this charter school option or these private school options or vouchers or whatever you want to call it and you just invested that in our public schools and made them meccas of learning and made them opportunities for advancement for young men and women we wouldn't be having this conversation but instead we have a state where there's a big have and have not you know again we went to clear lake high school we lived in that bubble think about what you heard about hisd when you were growing up you know, like how, you know, you had to go play a road game against, you know, somebody early on in the year for football and they were in HISD school and, you know, talked about getting jumped and all that. I mean, that was just going to watch a game and it was our negative attitude towards HISD. Everybody wanted out of HISD. That's why Clear Creek existed. That's why, you know, the Woodlands and all these other places, people didn't want to send their kids there because it was just not a good district. And it's, it's, the problem exists when it all comes down to property taxes, it doesn't get evenly spread out. So if Greg Abbott could take all of that money and then instead of it going equal, you know, going to one tiny little district, having a beautiful campus, and then the next one's run down with 15 portables in the back. No, everybody gets money across the board. Everybody's got a chance at a great education. But instead, this, this is being treated almost like it was with masking, like I don't want to wear a mask. Why should I have to wear a mask? Why should my tax money go to my next-door neighbor's kids for his school? I should get my money to let my kid go to where he wants to go to school. Well, as you mentioned, when we pool 
our resources as a society, we're able to do a little bit more with it and they go a little bit further. We can help some special needs students. We can have after school programs. We can have um, some sports and some music programs and art programs and theater programs. All those things happen when we combine our resources together as a society and we allow our kids to, you know, get to know the people in the community that they live with. You have a sense of community that's being built. You know, I, I, I know I've talked about the West Wing a, a few times, but one of my favorite lines in that whole show is, uh, you know, they're talking about violence and gun issues. And, and President Bartlett says education is the silver bullet. Because at the end of the day, a better educated society is a less violent society. People who are educated, who you know, are well-read, who are philosophical, who sit there and take the time to think about things, are less likely to commit violent acts. You know, that's a, a study that's shown uh, over time. And so the more that we take resources away from certain areas and from certain kids so that, you know, the few people in that school could get out of there and go somewhere different, it's unfair to the kids who are there. It's, it's a... Um, you know, it's it's a very selfish thought process that a lot of parents have um, with with the way our education system is set up. It's not set up for one family. One family doesn't have a say in what their kids being taught. It is for everyone. And and I'll, I'll say this: uh, in teaching, you know, the one year I taught at Catholic school, and unfortunately, the school closed down. Um, because of lack of funding, but it is a good resource for people that are able to do it. Uh, Catholic education is a good education, and I'm sure you know uh, the people are able to go to Lutheran South. Where I wanted to go back to something though, because you talked about Hollywood earlier, and I want you to think about any show about education or any movie that about you know teachers that you have ever seen. And they follow a certain formula. And I'll let you tell me what that formula I is. I think there's two formulas, to. actually, with, with teachers. You've got the um, bad teacher vibe, where they're party animals at night, and they come in hungover, and they get through the day, and, oh, they don't really like the kids, and they're, oh, I don't really like my job, and I hate doing this. And that's certainly one. I think that's out there a bit. But then you have the... Um, like Mr. Ripley, kind of like, or Mr. Feeney, where you are, you know, the most inspirational light of of hope, and this some you made a difference in this one student's life, and you know, it's it's uh, you're just the biggest reason for their success. And I, I feel like, at least in my opinion, Hollywood is kind of going to one of those two extremes, where either it's the Cameron Diaz bad teacher, where you're out late at night partying, showing up hungover the next day, or you are Mr. Feeney. And you are the sole reason that Eric Matthews decided to go back to college and, you know, take his SATs. Well, and, and you, you took it in a little bit of a different direction. I, uh, what you always see, and, and this is like when you look at like movies like The Substitute or Dangerous Minds. Or um, there was one with Matthew Perry. I can't remember what the name of it was, but... All these movies, the kids, all virtually the same. It's like they're practically bringing machine guns into the classrooms, or at least huge knives. Uh, there, there, are, you know, fist fights everywhere. 
they make the school summer school i think would be a perfect example of that where you get the pe coach coming in to uh handle all the misfits who couldn't pass english and, and had to retake it over the summertime well it, it, that one's even tame because they don't have any weapons but, you're, you're talking mean, like the coach uh, carter uh, hard school just, where you gotta you know the, the metal detector oh, on the way oh, in yeah. see because here's here's my point I, I taught at Galveston Ball, and you know, and you're familiar with. That. We we thought that was the ghetto in Clear Lake. We thought G Ball was about as hard as you could get. And if you and if you said, "Hey, you want to go watch? You know, go watch the Falcons down to Galveston," we're like, "No, no, no, no." That's you know. But see, here's the thing: I taught at that school. I never felt threatened because the whole idea of a war zone is a myth. Now, the school had problems. School definitely had problems. It had issues. It had things where, you know, if we had more funding, if we had, you know, some better ideas. And, and just to tell a, a little story for those you know, people wondering what this is all about. Uh, the state of Texas actually recently took over Lamarck. Lamarck ISD does not exist anymore. Um, it was actually folded over into Texas City. When we had Hurricane... Ike come through. I was actually coaching volleyball down in Galveston. Um, our school, I mean, our gym was flooded. So, you know, and we actually were out of school for like a good month. So we ended up practicing at Lamarck. And Lamarck was nice of us to let us go through practice. Now, I remember walking through the school during the school day wearing gym clothes because I'm, you know, there for practice and I'm looking for a restroom. Not one person stopped me, asked me, Hey, who are you? What are you doing here? Or can I help you find something? I could have had a gun. I could have had anything and there was no security or no, you know, and you know, that's obviously a lot about school culture. These are things that in certain schools we need to fix. The problem is, is that whenever you start giving people money to go somewhere else and you start allowing them to bail, it's great for the people who are allowed to bail, but you're not fixing anything. And there are kids that are going to have to stay there and they're going to have to figure it out and they're going to have even less money to do it with. And that's the thing is that that's what people don't understand. The average cost in Texas for a student in public school is about nine to ten thousand dollars a year that goes into your teacher salaries that goes into your schools that goes into your programs but what they don't tell you is that this is for every kid we have to take in every kid so i am a special ed facilitator i am not a classroom teacher i go into other teachers classrooms so you're paying me money when I don't have a classroom full of kids, I'm, I'm assisting other teachers. That costs money. That's a federal program. You can't, you know, you can't sit there and say we're not going to do special ed. I, I think, you know, the federal government's going to have a little problem with you. But we don't even have profoundly disabled students on our campus. You have some campuses where a, you have a kid that has an aide that stays with them literally all day. They're paid. That's what they're paid to do. That adds to that uh, to that amount that it costs per student. 
but we can't sit there and say, I'm sorry, your kid's wheelchair bound. We, we can't take and, you. And, and to you add to you? that as well, you, you know, what happens, well, you, well, you use Lamarck as an example, right? Because you've already brought that up. Let's say 35% of Lamarck's school gets a voucher and goes somewhere else, right? Now you have, obviously, statistically less money. Um, and Lamarck folds. The school, high school is no more. Now all those 65% of Lamarck all go to Texas City. Okay, that's where they're going to go to high school now. Now Texas City has way too many kids. Way too many kids. Their high school is not built for that. They're going to have class sizes that are way too big. Yeah, they may get a little bit more money because those kids are going there, but it doesn't really matter if you can't hire any more teachers because you don't have any more classrooms to put them in. You can you know, maybe get a few portables here and there, but at the end of the day, you've now underserved two high schools because you wanted a select group of students to leave that environment instead of trying to make it better. You've closed one school and you've overcrowded another one just because you want to get this 30% into a different area. Well, even or what's probably more likely is that you take the existing Lamarck High School, you now scrub off the name, you call it Texas City North, maybe? I don't know. And the whole thing is, is that you had failing teachers there. I mean, that's what your theory is, right? Because, you know, the test scores were so horrible, the state has to take you over. So we're now going to let all those teachers go. So now maybe we have a building we can put kids in, but we won't have anybody for those buildings to go into those buildings. And so, and this is, and that's, that's the whole thing that we're talking about. And, but what they, what conservatives want with the astroturfing and what they want to do, and they bring up this, all the CRT, they bring up all this grooming. They want to scare you, sit there and say, and, they, and Hollywood of course helps out with their dangerous minds. Oh my God, the inner city. I'm going to die. Oh my God, we're all going to die. No, you're not going to die. But you might get a substandard education. So, oh my goodness, I need to run off to this charter school or I need to run off to this magnet school. Most, and most people, I think, if you were to just lay this out for them, they'd be, okay, this makes sense. You don't want to do this. But when you get them all ginned up and afraid of, oh my God, you're going to tell my kid they're racist, or oh my God, you're going to teach my kid to be gay, or oh my God, you're going to bring in a drag queen to read them a story. Oh, oh ah. that's when we start saying, yeah, give me $5,000. I'll, I'll spend it and go over here where they're not going to do those things. It's, it's really sad. It really, it's, it's something that unfortunately, the news doesn't help. The media coverage of it doesn't help. Greg Abbott is using it to, you know, kind of distract away from a lot of his other shortcomings, too. Anytime something negative happens, he starts talking about students' rights and doing better for the kids and parents having a say in the education and yada, yada, yada. At the end of the day, all he's done is make Texas's education system worse. And it's it's been on a downward trend for I don't know, 15 years. It, it started with no child left behind. Um, and especially if you look at you know, Bush's great turnaround, it, it wasn't the case. And so you had a guy who claimed he was an education expert. He gets elected into the White House. Then nationally, a lot of these policies get involved. Then Texas doubles down on it. it it's just not a good system. You know, At the end of the day, I, I, this charter and vouchers thing has been argued on for 20 years now. 
it was something that started in the early 2000s and it's it's something that if you want to send your kid to private school okay go for it you know obviously that's your right that's your prerogative but you still have to pay your property taxes and those property taxes still fund the school we don't get to take that away and that's where the frustration comes in of we need, there needs to be a sense of community you know there was a time in this country that paying your taxes was the most patriotic thing you can do or now it's let's try and find as many loopholes as we can so I can pay as little as I can. And I get it. Everybody wants to save money in any way that they can. But at the end of the day, it's it's nice knowing that you're supporting that local school. You know, I pay my property taxes to a school district that my child doesn't go to because Haley teaches in a different district. She takes her daughter with her to that district just because it's it's easier that way. But it doesn't mean I... I want money back. I don't think I should be getting money to send my, my kid to a different school. Like, no, I'm, I'm proud to support the students in this area. And, and, and I'm proud that my money helps foster a community's education. And I don't understand why more people don't have that thought process. I think it's a, it's, it's a very selfish society that we live in nowadays. I think COVID made it a lot more so when it came to masking. It just... It just put this big divide in everybody of those who care about the community and those who only care about themselves. And those who only care about themselves kind of lived in, in the shadows and didn't want people to know how selfish they were for the longest time. But now they're, you know, cool waving that banner left and right saying, yeah, I only give a crap about my family. You guys can go to hell. And that's where we're at right now. Vouchers and magnets, I mean, vouchers and, and uh, charter schools are selfish they really are if they if if you want to take money away from another child so that your kid can go to a different school that's a terrible way to live life well i want to go through a segue and i'm not going to do a hard segue here so i listen to sports radio on the way to work and and really it gives me a nice respite because i i I try to avoid as much politics as I possibly can. It still, you know, filters in. But they run this commercial at least, I would say, 20 times a day. And I can't even remember the name of the firm. But basically, it's, it starts off with this guy, well, I didn't pay my taxes for 10 years. I now owe $200,000. But thanks to this company, I only paid 177 bucks. And... I guess people are supposed to listen to this ad and think, man, that's cool. And I'm thinking, you asshole. You're the reason we're in debt. It's like all these people, you know, oh, all the, you know, and, and it's crazy. And, and we'll get into, we'll give into Kevin McCarthy and his tax policies later. But I wanted to segue into some good news since we've been complaining. Uh, have you heard that you're Houston, Texas? I have, you know, and, and I was going to segue this one too, because we've been talking so much about the culture of this society and the culture of policing, and and you know, up and down the the systematic issues that are in these um, institutions that we have. When you want to talk about culture, I think the Houston Texans are going to turn the entire culture of this whole organization around. And it, it really, I've, I've been very hard on Cal McNair. I really have. Um, you know, I know I shared with you the story about um, him parking in the fire lane when I went to, to training camp a few, uh, you know, about 10 years ago or so when, when, when Bob was still alive. But something changed in Cal. 
You know, when it came to firing Jack Easterbay, I don't know what it was, but the moment that he made that decision, things have changed. You know, there was a report that came out before the free agency, before the period for the Texans to sign a coach, uh, that there was no way D'Amico Ryans would even want to interview. You know, there's no, he didn't even want to come talk to them. Uh, and I, I'll be honest, I believed it. The guy sued <laughs> the Houston Texans organization and won um, over their turf and his injury in 2016. But I, I, I got to give Cal credit here. He, he did what he needed to do. He went out and he got the guy that is going to change the culture in that franchise for the better. I, I think the Texans made a huge mistake letting Mike Vrabel go years ago when they had the opportunity. He was the coach in waiting, and next thing you know, look what he's done for the Tennessee Titans. Uh, I think D'Amico is that and more uh, because he was drafted here. He was a rookie of the year here. He was you know, a, a, a just a stronghold in the middle linebacker spot for a long time, uh, and I, I couldn't be more excited for what should be a completely different style of Houston Texans football than we've seen in maybe five years. Yeah. And I, I've said this on the site, uh, on battle red blog. And so I'll say it here. The problem you had, especially when you had Easterby in the organization is they thought they were going to be smarter than everybody else. And so they were going to do the offbeat thing and we'll get into the Astros here in a second. And, and, because I think there is there is amount of leeway you get whenever you're successful. And the Astros have been really, really successful. And so they get a little bit more leeway than probably they normally should get or would get. But the thing is with the Texans, they always wanted to do the smart thing. Let's hire Josh McCown. He's never coached a day of football in his life. But you know what? Everybody in the league seems to like him. Let's hire. Oh, well, we have a lawsuit. Can't do that. Um, yeah, we'll get. Let's hire this David Cully guy. Sure, he's been coaching for thirty years, and he's never even been a coordinator. Yeah, when he was coaching at Kansas City, his wide receivers didn't even catch a touchdown pass. He was coaching quarterbacks coach when Josh Allen actually sucked at quarterback. Let's hire that guy. What D'Amico Ryan says is D'Amico Ryans is the obvious hire. He's who the players want. He's who the fans want. He's who, now who's it with the McNairs want. And, and it's easy. He coached the best defense in the league. He was a member of your team. It's the obvious choice. The Texans have given up. They squandered all their opportunities to do the fun, cutesy, smart thing. We're going to stop doing that. Let's make smart, obvious decisions. Okay, that's decision number one. Congratulations. Round of applause. Okay, the next one, let's draft a quarterback. Second overall pick. If Bryce Young's on the board, you pick him. I don't care if he's 5'10". I don't care if he's 5'4". You pick him. He's the best quarterback on the board. If he's gone, C.J. Stroud. Don't give me Will Levis. You know, don't, let's not make up you know, stuff as we go along. But that's why the fans are excited because I think, and if you were to ask uh, Nick Casario and I think if you were to bore into his brain, he probably wanted Jonathan Gannett. But Cal McNair and Hannah McNair, you know, they stood on a table and they said, no. They said, we like him, the fans like him, so he's our coach. 
Yeah, and I, they need to do. I really think the city of Houston owes Mrs. McNair a debt of gratitude. Uh, there was a shot of her basically falling asleep in one of the games, and, and it was like two days later that Easter Bay was fired. And I really think she woke something up in Cal. You've seen a different Cal. She's been more involved. She was involved in this coaching search uh, in a way that she personally had not been at any other point. So um, a big, big kudos to Mrs. McNair um, for giving Cal a slap on the butt and saying, let's go and get the guy that everybody is saying you need to go get. This is this is the one that, you know, there's been a very few moments of pure elation as a Houston Texans fan. You know, I remember the J.J. pick in the playoff game. Um, I distinctly remember the night that we drafted Deshaun Watson. Uh, I was actually working at the original Carabas at the time, and, and our GM, um, God, who was the GM at the time when we drafted Deshaun? It, he left because his wife had can- uh, uh, breast cancer. Uh, Rick Smith. Rick, Rick Smith came into the restaurant. Came into the restaurant oh, that yeah, night. Yeah. Right after drafting Deshaun Watson, I, I got to shake his hand and say thank you. And, you know, sadly that didn't work out. But this is up there for me in, in those moments of pure elation as a Texans fan of we got the best coach on the market. And and people can say, you know, um, you know, he may not have been the best candidate. Denver may have, got, you know, Sean Payton, whatever you want. At the end of the day, Everybody said this guy was the one. We didn't overthink it. As you said, we didn't try and outsmart ourselves, didn't try and be the smartest guy in the room. Because at the end of the day, if you're trying to be the smartest guy in the room, you're not. You don't. The smart guy doesn't try to be smart. He just is smart. And that's what the Texans didn't realize. You go with the obvious choice. And as you said next, we go get our quarterback. We've got some nice pieces on defense. We can build out from there. You know, and hopefully um, – it, it, the NFL, with, I think, is the league that's easiest to turn around a team in when when you've got as much cap space as the Texans do, um, and and as important as, as important as the quarterback position is, all sometimes all it takes is getting the right quarterback, and and you could really turn things around, or you know, getting the right right coach quarterback combo. Really, you know, especially when you look at you know, say Jacksonville this year to last year, you get the right two guys paired up, and you know, the sky's the limit for your team. Oh, absolutely, and I, and you're mentioning Miss McNair, and, and she and Cal actually went on the radio uh, a little over a week ago, and it's clear how involved she is. And I think, you know, and depending on the rumors, and I think what's most encouraging about all this is, is depending on how much you want to believe rumors, because right now there's always rumors. But there's rumors that the Denver Broncos made a run at I saw today. that Schefter Schefter didn't Schefter's trying to cover for um Sean, for Sean Payton by saying no that's not true but uh Rappaport said they made several runs at him and his people wouldn't was just denying the call telling him basically leave me leave me alone I'm, I'm going to the Texans man yeah and, and of course you know Sean Payton and I think some people and you know if you had told me say about a week, week and a half ago, that Sean Payton was going to be our coach. I am. My wife is from Baton Rouge. She's a, you know, she's a huge Saints fan. Um, uh, the Saints are basically my second team. I, you know, I would have loved that because, you know, but Broncos surrendered a first and a future two. That's pretty yeah. hefty price. 
I think they're getting the three back. So I think like, so they're but getting still the a first and next year's second, and you got to pay the guy. And and to me, yeah. At the end of the day, it's not worth that compensation. I feel like on top of the money because we're already paying three. We're paying O'Brien. We're paying Romeo Cornell. We're paying Cully. We're paying Lovey Smith. And now we're going to pay this new head coach. It's, you know, it's not my money. I don't really care. But at the end of the day, to do all that and have to trade two draft picks. When we need a lot of things on this team, you know, we have no quarterback. We have, I want to say no offensive weapons whatsoever. Maybe Pierce, maybe, I don't know. There's been a lot of, in Texas history, flash in the pan running backs. You've had one good year and then didn't come back again the next year, you know, all of Steve Slayton. Um, But Dominic Williams, another one. So I I want to see Pierce again before I say this is a guy we can build our offense around. So realistically, we have one unproven possible piece and nothing. Our, our top receiver from last year wants out. I wouldn't say we have a legit number two receiver anywhere on that roster. Um, we don't have a good tight end. I don't feel like uh, most of the offensive line could be adjusted. And you need a quarterback. So at that point, can you really afford to give away a first this year and a second next year? And I feel like the answer is no. Well, and, and we had a radio guy here who framed it, framed it, the argument in an interesting way. I'll have to give him that. What he says, would you, in 2015, would you have traded J.J. Watt for Andy Reid? No. And he made an interesting argument for that because now we draft Deshaun Watson in 2017. You're pairing him with Andy Reid. Yeah, you that's know, pretty interesting. Yeah. But the thing is, is that I know how great Sean Payton was. And if Sean Payton had come with no draft picks Absolutely. attached to him, I would have been on that in a minute. But the thing is, is that he quit on his team. We know why he quit on his team, because Drew Brees retired. And he knew New Orleans was going to be in quarterback hell for who knows how long. And he's just like, nope, I'm out on that. So how committed is he going to be? You know, let's say in, you know, fast forward nine, ten months. And Russ Wilson's going through another just absolutely brutal season. How long is he going to be in on that? Yeah, that, that makes it tough. It's... I don't know. I, I don't think Russell Wilson will be as bad as he was this year. I think uh, Hackett was, was about oh, no. as bad an offensive coach as, as you could have. But And again, they made the move to get Hackett because they thought that would bring Aaron Rodgers to town. And then they had to reverse pivot and go get um, Russell Wilson. But that's also what happens when you trade for a guy who's possibly over the hill and give him a fat extension. Um, and now you've got... Yeah, in his own office. office. I mean, it's it's going to be an interesting scenario in Denver, but I, I think the Texans couldn't be positioned better right now than you know compared to where they were a year ago. But you know, speaking of, of positioning themselves, um, not only did the Texans make a big hire, our our beloved Astros finally have a GM. Um, I personally could not be happier with with the decision and. You know, kind of want to see what your thoughts are and and, and uh, kick it back to you. 
There was a famous coach who said that you should not ignore in victory what you would not ignore in defeat. The last, I would say, at least since July uh, for the Astros, up until this hire, has been a shit show. Um, James Click engineers a trade where he was going to trade Jose Curdy to the Cubs for Wilson Contreras. Dusty Baker says no. Your manager vetoes that trade. I don't know any other organization in baseball where the manager vetoes trades. but And the reason why he vetoed the trade is not because Wilson Contreras is bad. Because he would have been Martin Martin Maldonado's backup. So probably a top three catcher in baseball would have been Martin Maldonado's backup. Well, I'll just let that sit there for a second. And then we go in, we, I'm not going to say he fired James Click. He just lowballed him and James Click said, no, thank you. And so now we have Jeff Bagwell in front. I don't know if he's making decisions or I don't know if he's just the one articulating it, but either way, that's not a good look. And then you get the interview list, which includes, in addition to Brown, and it includes some other names that, pretty good names. And then you get the other so-called finalist, Brad Osmus. So I don't know if you realize how close we were to. to I'm not sure. Really I'm not sure if Osmus was a real candidate or not. I I feel like that one was a smokescreen. I really don't think they were going to go that way. I think if anything. They were more likely to let Bagwell sit tight for a year and then go get the guy Stearns from Milwaukee. I think that's – I was really nervous yeah. about that. And I still think he might come on as you know a, a position above Brown next year. And, again, we're talking about uh, Dana Brown, who the Astros hired as their new GM. Um, but let's you – know, to talk about this man's specific track record, you look at the young core that the Braves have in place right now, He's the one who drafted and signed a a majority of them. When you're looking at scouting and developing talent, could not have picked a better guy for that. And then on top of it, I think one of the things that drove me crazy with Click again, he wasn't willing to spend. And you know, we had on free agency. Okay, whatever. You lost Springer because you didn't want to pay him. You lost Cole because you didn't want to pay him. And those were. You know, those were the Loonhout days. But then even when Click gets in there, oh, you actually, Click lost Springer because he didn't want to pay him. Click lost Correa because he didn't want to pay him. So now we've got these guys coming up with Kyle Tucker, who you've got to find a way to get an extension done with Kyle Tucker. And with um, Fromber, you've got to find a way to extend Fromber. And I, I think Dana gives us a much better chance to get those guys extended, especially with Kyle Tucker knowing he already has rejected one extension offer that came from that front office. Having a new person bringing a new extension offer to Kyle Tucker, I think is going to be monumental in getting him locked up long term. I think, yeah, and I think when you look at what Dana Brown has done with the Braves just you know, and what the Braves have done, is not only drafting those guys, but he's extended virtually all of them. The Braves have extended virtually all of them. Uh, Dansby Swanson was the only guy they couldn't extend. And he's the guy that if you're looking at that team, you're looking at, okay, who's the weak link of all these young stars? 
Dansby Swanson's probably the weak link. He's not quite as good as Austin Riley or uh, Ozzy Albies or Michael Harris or uh, Ronald Acuna or uh, God, that yeah. team is And then their young uh, pitching with Freed uh, um, and and the lefty um, that they have as well. And then you know one of the guys that they reformed off the team that I was the broadcaster for, Tyler Matzik, a guy that was a number one. A first round pick for the for the Rockies got to the big leagues, couldn't find the strike zone. Um, came to us in independent baseball. First year was walking eleven guys a game. Second year we saw something in video said, "Hey, tweak your elbow this way." Next thing you know, the guy's ninety nine on the black, and he's back in the big leagues pitching against the Astros in the World Series. So these guys know how to find talent, and not just through the amateur draft. There are some reformation projects out there available in independent baseball. And when you think about pitching reformation projects in Major League Baseball in the last 10 years, the Astros do it better than anybody else. So to know now we have a guy who also looks in that area as well to see if maybe there's something happened in the American Association. Maybe there's a guy who found something in the Atlantic League that we can get into the system and see if we can tweak him and get him to, you know, to be a bullpen piece, to get a hard-throwing lefty like Matzik. He, he would kill in the Astros bullpen we have no one throwing like that from the left hand side so to have someone who's willing to think creatively that way to look outside the box to find ways to improve this team because the thing one of the things that drives me crazy about click he bet his career on jake myers he had a chance to sign starling Marte in the offseason jim crane wanted starling Marte, and <laughs> and james click bet his career on jake myers who I like Jake Myers. He seems like a great guy, but he had very limited run in the big leagues. Looked like he was pretty good, then had a terrible shoulder injury, one that you don't come back from in nine months. And we're going to bet our career on this guy? I just I don't understand a lot of the decisions that Click made. Well, and what gets me, and because and, uh, uh, I have an interesting point here with Tucker, but uh, kind of to go back uh, to all that. The two things I hate most when I'm watching a team in the offseason is, number one, let's say we're negotiating with player A, and we're willing to give him $25 million. And let's say he goes somewhere else for 30 It happens. Hey, it happens. But if you're willing to spend $25 million on player A, then you should be willing to find another player you're willing to spend $25 million on. Because that money's there. So, and that's what killed me with Starling Marte. You know, you brought him up. But, you know, there's some other guys they could have done that with. You know, if you're not willing to go that high on Verlander, for instance, hey, I get it. You know, Verlander's now the highest paid pitcher in baseball, you know, on an average annual value basis. And he's going to be 40. Great. You don't want to go there. Can't we go there with somewhere else? You know, with somebody, you know, you could have brought in Contreras. You could have brought, you know, you could have brought in any of those outfielders that were running around, like Brandon Nemo or any of those guys like that. And and yeah. I don't want to pay them thirty million, but I'm saying you could have gone out and done that. Now the problem, the, the issue with Tucker, and and this is not, you know, this is one Brown's going to have to crack, is that he's not like Jordan. Jordan is Cuban. He came over here like practically on a raft boat probably maybe $3 in his pocket. So when you go to him and say, hey, we'll offer you 20 million years, like, yeah, all right, I'm in the, you know. Tucker is a top 10 overall pick. 
in the in the amateur draft. He his salary bonus is probably was about five or six million dollars. It's not a ton of money, but it's enough money where he could sit there and say, you know what, I'm not taking your team friendly deal and right on, now. And on top of it, you mentioned he's a different scenario. He's a completely different baseball player, right? He is he is a oh, I believe sure. now two time Gold Glover. So what he does in the outfield as as far as a defensive value added is is going to weigh into that hugely. Jordan, for the most part in his Astros career, has been a designated hitter. Dusty mixed him in a little bit more in left field this year to kind of give us a little bit more lineup flexibility. And I do hope that we see Jordan play the field a little bit more because I, I think he's better than advertised. But that being said, Tucker is the best right fielder in baseball. He is the best defensive right fielder in the game. He has shown it year in and year out, and his numbers offensively are only going to get better when you take the shift out of play. So his number is is going to be closer to the 30-35. And every, you know, when, when we let Springer go, it was because we were we needed to be able to pay Correa. When we let Correa go, it was so we could extend, you know, Tucker. Well, where where's that extension at? And I love I love that we got the Alvarez deal done, but I don't think that one was as hard for the factors that you mentioned. I think that one was a pretty easy extension to get done at the end of the day. I think Kyle Tucker's takes a little bit of legwork. I think they lowballed him the first time out, and that's why I really do feel like Dana's going to have a better opportunity to go in there and get that deal done because Kyle likes playing here. Kyle loves his teammates. He loves the city of Houston. I don't think he wants to go anywhere. I just think he wants to be compensated fairly. Um, and I think they made a big mistake going to arbitration with Kyle Tucker. I, I really think – I really oh, think and, – and, and Christian Javier, too, over $500,000. That's a terrible decision at, at the end of the day. You should you should avoid arbitration at all costs with your players, especially if you want to lock them up on a long-term extension at some point because all you're going to do in arbitration, for those people who don't know – that there's no middle ground. There's either a winner or a loser when you go to arbitration in Major League Baseball. Let's say I'm the I'm the team and Scott's the player. Scott wants five million. I want to give him three million. Scott's going to list all the reasons he thinks he's worth five million, and I'm going to list all the things that Scott has done wrong his entire time in my organization and why I don't think he's worth that five million dollars. Someone's going to win that argument. Let's say I do. And Scott only gets $3 million next year. Guess who still gets to show up to spring training with a smile on his face, sitting next to the guy who just spent two hours detailing everything that you've done wrong in this organization and why you don't deserve the money that you think you deserve. There's no way you should do that with Kyle Tucker. Well, yeah, or at least your your reasons why you're right. not as good as you think you are. You know, maybe not. And so the thing is with – and so – and that's another – negotiating tactic that I don't like that the Astros have been guilty of. So they did this with Correa. They had in their mind, I think a maximum that they wanted to give Correa and they ended up getting to that thing eventually. But the, what they do first, they offered him an absolutely ridiculous lowball offer to start off with. What does that do? He's going to tell you, no, I mean, do you think he's gonna? I think I think they offered him something like twenty million a year to start off with. He's not gonna accept that. So eventually, you get yourself up to. I think they ended up going at five years at about thirty million per. Okay. Yeah. Why not lead off with that? 
That's what you're willing to do. And so with Tucker, the problem that they did is, like you mentioned, they did a low ball offer. He's not going to accept that. The thing is what Tucker knows is that whether he wins arbitration this year or not, next year Correct. that thing balloons to at least $20 million in, in arbitration. You're, you're looking at one I mean, of the exit velocity the leaders to the pool side in Major League Baseball in Kyle Tucker. No one in baseball, minus maybe five or six guys, pull the ball harder than Kyle Tucker. And now you can only have two defenders on that side. They both have to be on the infield dirt. He's going to be near a 300 hitter next year. Well, whether he is or isn't, I mean, this is just in the way that arbitration works. And, um, you know, talking over the years with Tal Smith, for instance, who, you know, he ran a company after he quit with the Astros where he would advise clubs on arbitration. This is basically what you do is you're comparing a player to another like player at that similar point. So if he's in year four, you're comparing him to other guys. Who so are then who's the comp for Kyle Tucker? Because I that's a tough one for me because he's so athletic. Honestly, to me, his, his comp is George Springer. Because I, I think I think you could right. slide much like Tucker. Springer started his career in right field. I think Springer could slide to center field easily and give that team defensive value in center field and flexibility with how they, they deploy their lineup. And their numbers are pretty similar at this point in their career when you look at the power and average standards. Springer didn't start hitting the high two eighties till year four or five. Well, and, and to throw in another thing in Tucker's pile, and, and as a guy who's into complex statistics, stolen base totals are really not that valuable in real time. But when you're talking about sexy stats, and you sit there and say, here's this guy who's a 30-30 guy, or could be a 30-30 guy. Springer had the speed, but I, I don't know what the deal was. He never really could steal bases all that well at the major league level. I don't know if he just didn't want to, the team didn't want him to, you know, who knows, but Tucker does it. He does, does it in the same environment. He's stealing at least 20. I think Springer, I think Springer is more of an injury issue, right? Like why put that risk on your body for something that typically doesn't help the team that much in terms of stolen bases. But, but you're right. Tucker has the same speed that Springer does and is a, is a 30, 30 guy. Are you, I mean, so if we're going to start comparing him to guys, I mean, do you compare them to Acuna? Do you compare them to no, Juan Soto? I think they're. I think yeah. Soto. Soto hits for more average. He's a more complete hitter. Uh, he walks a ton. He, he's. I think he's got better plate coverage as well. He he hits to all fields a little bit better. I think that's Kyle Tucker's next development is being better at using those Crawford boxes. I. I still think no left-handed hitter used the the boxes better than Lance Berkman. If if Tucker could learn how to just that little flick of the wrist that Berkman used to have on the outside pitch into the boxes, he'd be unstoppable. And I think that's the next step for him. But I do think that you know an Acuna and Soto, I, I do think they're that next class above Kyle Tucker and superstar value. Well, and there's and there's a name I'm going to throw out there. And we're going to remove 2018 because I'm pretty sure he was cheating along with the rest of his team. But the name I throw yeah, out there is Mookie Betts. Because you look at Mookie Betts, good power, not great power. Uh, he hits for average. 
He probably hits he does. a better average than Tucker. He's so. a better defender too. I um, feel like he's so in right field. You're mentioning that Tucker's the best. Maybe Mookie Betts is the best right fielder. Yeah, I think they're each the best in their own league. I, I think that would be fair to say that there's no one in the American League defensively. I'd say is hands down better than Kyle Tucker. But the same could be said for Mookie in the National League. But if you took 2018 Mookie away, because those numbers were just yeah. stupid. If you took those numbers away, there's not that much separation. I mean, I think Mookie's a better player, but he's maybe like, what, a win better? I think that's about right. I think he's just, he gives you a little bit more versatility as well, because Mookie can play a darn good second base as on top of what he does in right field. So when you pay him the number that the Dodgers pay him, you know that, okay, if, if our roster's struggling, the lineup's struggling, we could literally trade for an infielder or an outfielder knowing that we're still going to have great defense at second base or in right field. I don't, you know, obviously Tucker doesn't give you that same flexibility. I think that goes into part of what makes Mookie Betts as valuable as he is. Yeah, and that's and and when you look at Fangraphs, Fangraphs has a chart that they have on the bottom of every player's page, where they tell you how much he's worth in their version of dollars. And so, for in this last year, Fangraphs had a win, basically at about eight to nine million dollars. So, in real terms, Mookie Breast would probably get eight or nine million more than Tucker. What's Mookie Betts getting? So, if you want to say, like, now that Fernando, well, I'm not even go there. I was going to say Fernando Tatis is now an outfielder, but that that's that's a horrible comp. But, I mean, if you look at him, he's probably making 30 to 35 million. Mookie gets 25 so, a year. Well, he earned 20, he's going to get 25 in 2023. Bad. And I don't think, but at the, you got to remember, too, Mookie signed an extension before this $300 million contract craze that's gone on. So that number, Mookie's well, on what would be considered a team-friendly deal nowadays. Well, and what's what's funny about those long-term deals is that um, it is such a gamble for both sides. Because let's take, like, say, Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper, I think he 13 at 330. Yeah, so he didn't no. get thirty million a year. He got, but the thing is, is that what the Phillies know is that he's worth more than thirty million dollars a year if he's healthy. So they're getting bang for their buck. But what they also know is they know one good thing and one bad thing. Uh, the bad thing is that he's not going to be a good player at the end of that contract. There's no possible way. And there's no possible way he'll be worth $30 million at the end of that contract. However, what they also know is that baseball economics, like anything else with inflation, in 10 years, what's $20 million going to cost you in yeah. real dollars? Because in, in, in 20, $33, $20 million might seem like, well, like a $5 yeah. million dollar player. Maybe. We don't know. We don't know how much baseball is going to grow. Um, because, you know, part of it is that they refuse. We talked about this last week. They refuse to do certain things that would grow their product. But 
it's a huge gamble, and I think that's where Mookie is, is that he took that long-term stability where he surrendered some of those short-term possible earning power. And that's where Tucker is right now, is that you're going to have to convince him, and you're going to have to give a number that seems high enough but is going to be lower than what he could get on the I think for market. Tucker, and this is me personally, I think the number should be around six years, $180 million. I think that gets the deal done. I think as time goes on, uh, that number looks a lot more palatable. And we all know that Jim Crane doesn't like 10-year deals. He, he typically tends to max out about six years. So, And on top of that, if you're Kyle Tucker, you're still pretty young. So you take that six-year deal, you can still get another mega payday after that when, when the market has gone in a different direction. And you know now maybe $30 million is not what you're worth. Now you're a $40 million guy. Okay, go get your $40 because we only did a six-year deal. If he's willing to listen to that, we're in great shape. If he's one of those guys who wants to only go through free agency one time and wants a 13-year million, 13 year contract, the Astros are going to be in trouble because they don't like doing those contracts. And real quick before we transition into another topic, uh, and to help us get there, I, I think really, I think it through the, the comps for, for Kyle Tucker, I think a good one uh, would be Paul O'Neill, you know, a, a former... Really good defensive right fielder, had some good pop, obviously a short portion right field at Yankee Stadium that he was able to take advantage of, but a guy who was integral to some championship teams uh, and was a darn good right fielder in his day in Paul O'Neill. But speaking of darn good versus Hall of Fame good, um, the, the ballots went out, everything came in this week, and you know, lo and behold, as there is every year, you know, outrage and and hysteria sets in um, with the results of these ballots. And and we're in a situation this year where we're only getting one elected Hall of Famer from the Writers Committee uh, in Scott Rowland. And and I know you've you've written a couple books on the Hall of Fame, Scott, and I know you're uh, you know pretty well versed in in the process and everything. And I don't necessarily have a problem with Scott Rowland as a Hall of Famer. I think there are other guys that if you consider Scott Rowland a Hall of Famer, you know, you, you got to look at, say, a Dale Murphy, for example, who had, had very, very similar numbers. But I more have an issue with how is that the only name on that list that got 75%? And when you look at the amount of ballots that are just sent in blank, completely blank, that's a problem because guys like Billy Wagner get in if that's the case. You know, you've got people who are falling off ballots that I felt like when we watched them play, they were Hall of Fame players. And now they don't even get past one ballot. And I, I think we really need to change the way the Hall of Fame voting works. Some of these old hats who have had a vote for 50 years, they got to go. And we, some of these guys who have baseball podcasts, they got to get in with votes because they understand the game at a level that these older sports writers have never understood it. Well, I'll... I'll say this. Uh, the Hall of Fame process has improved a lot in two different areas. Uh, number one, the majority of voters are publicizing their ballots. And I think if you look at the ballots for the people who have made their votes public versus the ones that have not, the people who are making their votes public, you're not seeing them turning in blank ballots. The ones who are public. The ones who are doing that are not publicizing their ballot. To me, the first change I would make is I would just simply say, 
your ballot has to be available to the public. We have to see who you're voting for. Because I think, you know, a lot of people don't play that cute game where they're like, oh, I don't think anybody from this era should be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, come on. Now, what I'll say about Scott Rowland is Scott Rowland is a good example of a guy that combines offensive and defensive value, like we were talking about with, with O'Neill, although I don't think O'Neill's a Hall of Famer, and Tucker. And I think Tucker's going to have this issue, you know, when he retires someday, let's say he's healthy for another 10 years. He's not going to put up great offensive numbers historically, but when you add the value defensively, he's there. And so I think the older hats that you mentioned are guys that don't pay attention to those things. But I think we've seen improvement in general, like the gold glove voting has been a lot better in recent years. I mean, all of them are pretty much the tops at their position in defensive runs saved. It's not like years ago when Rafael Palmeiro won a gold glove at first base after playing 15 games and DHing the rest of the time. I mean, that was the most ridiculous thing ever. And I think they've also streamlined the Veterans Committee process is the second thing they've done. Uh, we still get some people who are put in that I would not put in. Harold Baines in recent years was just, that, that was just stupid. But, you know, Fred McGriff... I could go back and forth on him. Um, he's also going in this year. But it's not a ridiculous entry. And that was from the players, too. That's from the players' committee that said, right. you know, hey, we played with this guy. He's a Hall of Famer. And I think that holds a lot of weight. I think the problem, so the problem I have with the players, you know, the vote is that the whole idea that they're going to be better than anybody else the person who's done more damage to the Hall of Fame than anybody else is Frankie Frisch. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, but he's a Hall of Fame second baseman. Uh, played in the 20s and 30s. He's legitimately a Hall of Famer. I mean, he was one of the best defensive second baseman ever. Good hitter. He winds up on the Veterans Committee in the 60s and early 70s before he dies. He played with the Giants and Cardinals. If you go back and look at the Veterans Committee ballots, look how many Giants and Cardinals are winding up in the Hall of Fame. We've got like guys like Chick Hafey, Ross Youngs, you know, Travis Jackson. Like, what are we doing? I mean, he's just putting on every one of his buddies. So any anything that, and my plea is, any process that you want to put through, if you want broadcasters to have a vote, if you want bloggers to have a vote, if you want um, podcasters to have a vote, if you want fans to have a vote, if you want players to have a vote, just make it public. Because what happens is when we get behind these closed doors and cigar-filled smoke rooms, that's when we get these ridiculous additions. And, and that's, you know, and that's kind of unfortunate. I mean, we could run through the, the the ballot this year and see who we would put in. You know, maybe our you know maybe our listeners would like to hear that. But that's my only plea: make it public. I'm with you. I'm a hundred percent with you that the ballot needs to be a hundred percent public. There's you shouldn't be ashamed or afraid to show your vote. Uh, and when you look at the ballot this year, there's a few guys for sure that I I think are no doubt Hall of Famers. The one to me that that really really bothered me that 
is Todd Helton. Um, that guy was a stud, man. And and he gets hit with the, the Coors Field um, narrative way too often. Because if you look at his numbers away from Coors Field, he was a monster there as well. Uh, and then the other one that, you know, personally to me as a Houston Astros fan, but I think as a baseball fan as well, and we've talked about it before with relievers, but Billy Wagner, um, as a closer, has every number that you would want from a Hall of Fame closer when you look at Eckersley, when you look at uh, Rivera, when you look at Hoffman. Billy Wagner's numbers are right there with all of those guys. And so for him to be kind of jerked around the way that he has been, I, I think is really unfair. I mean, obviously he's he's climbed up. He got 68% uh, on this ballot, but that's his eighth time through. You know, he's got two more shots and then that's it. When, if you watched baseball from, you know, 96 through 03, there was, you know, again, two guys maybe you'd call to get the final three outs of a game in all of the league other than Billy Wagner. And, and depending on the time period, Wagner was... You know, you could argue he was more effective than uh, Trevor Hoffman at certain points in his career. So, obviously, Mario Rivera, the GOAT, when it comes to closers, you know, for sure. But after that, I, I think it's really up for debate. And I think Wagner hopefully gets in next year. But there is an argument to be made uh, on Billy Wagner's behalf that he should have been and should already be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I'll start off with your first guy, Todd Heldon. And the thing is, what kills me is there's so much information available nowadays. We can look at just basic numbers like OPS plus. And for those of y'all who don't know what OPS plus is, if OPS is on base plus slugging. Plus compares you to the league average. They allow for ballpark norms with that, folks. So if he's busting out a 130 or 140, that's accounting for the fact he's playing in cores. I mean, and so I, I don't, you know, I don't understand this. Now, with Wagner, a couple of facts. I don't know if you knew this about Billy Wagner. I did. You he broke his Wagner. arm and he wanted to keep playing, so he learned how to throw left-handed and realized he could throw harder left-handed than he could right-handed. Unbelievable. And his son is a non-roster by T. Young athlete. Will Wagner. So, and, and he's an infielder, so I don't, I don't know what chances he has. But, you know, maybe he'll stick in, in Sugar Land, for those of you who want to watch uh, Billy's son play. Uh, he could possibly end up there this year. You know, the funny thing is with closers, and this is, I hate saves as a statistic. And the reason why I hate saves is because it is the one statistic, it was invented in 1969, by a journalist, just kind of threw it out there. So let's think about what we do. Who is the Astros' highest paid reliever? You said who was? Now, who is currently? I'm going to guess Presley. So who's going to get the save opportunities? Well, normally Presley, but Dusty Baker is one of those managers who he at least will go to Presley whenever he needs the toughest outs. Right, and and the Astros, and obviously he did a great job in the postseason, just like all the other relievers did. I mean, the Astros' postseason relief performance is historic, if you go look at those numbers. I mean, they were just lights out. But what I would point out is, if you look at a lot of teams, especially the teams that are bad, 
the highest paid guy is your closer. Is he your best guy on those bad teams? No. Like if you look at the Braves, they opened up with Will Smith as their closer this year. Why? Well, he was the, the I mean, he also was the closer for a team that won the World Series the year before, too. Yeah. And you had Kenley Jansen. So Kenley Jansen was actually the closer. But the point is, is that he got some save opportunities early in the year. Wasn't any good. And the Braves finally figured it out when they figured out, ah, oh, we shouldn't be pitching this guy in, in, uh, in good situations. And you look at other bad teams. But the point is, is that if you're going to look at save tolls as a sign of greatness, it's a sign of opportunity. Wagner, but Wagner's other numbers, real and, quick, I want to run through well, those with Wagner, you real quick before you make your Wagner argument. Because yeah. he's, he's got a career 231 ERA. His ear rate plus is 187. His career whip is .998. Uh, he worked 903 innings over 853 games, giving up only 601 hits, and again, only 200. I'm sorry, only 82 homers across 903 innings. I mean, those those numbers take. I didn't even mention the saves. That's a Hall of Fame pitcher to me. Oh no! It, well, and the number that you didn't mention that might be the most impressive one is that one time. He had more Ks per nine innings than any pitcher that ever pitched. I don't think he closed with that. But when he, he was did close, prime, he as at right now he has one thousand one hundred ninety six career strikeouts. Uh, that is number one uh, for his position. For his position, yeah. So at one time he was, uh, regardless of any position, he had the highest rate. And, but I, I think he may have tilled off at the end. So, if you want a wing of relief pitchers in the Hall of Fame, which is perfectly reasonable, he's one of the best relief pitchers. I mean, that, 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 there's no denying this. I would say, and this is where, you know, again, the saves kind of rears his ugly head. Lee Smith's in the Hall of Fame because he saved a bunch of games. Trevor Hoffman's in the Hall of Fame because he saved a bunch of games. Were they better than Billy Wagner? No. Not through any reasonable method. I mean, I don't know if Trevor Hoffman could break glass, you know, by the end of his career. Uh, I mean, I think he was throwing all change-ups. Which, you know, God love him. You know, do what you have to do. But Wagner, I mean, he's throwing for most of his career yeah. Here's here's the here's the old Terminator in the words of uh, Ricky Vaughn. Come and get it. I mean, he developed a slider. He did. It was a good one. He had a good slider, especially he would get in on the hands of righties with that slider. Um, and it was it was a very effective pitch for him. But the thing, what what was remarkable to me, and this is I think a testament to his greatness, is how long would you say he was great? Eight years, because he was well, after he left the Astros and he went to the Mets, and then you know he was still great with the Mets when he was there. He ended with the Braves. So, uh, yeah, I feel like he was top two in baseball for about eight years. So let me. So let's compare him to somebody else who happens to be left-handed, happens to throw over a hundred miles an hour. Talking Chapman used to. Yep. How good was how how long was Chapman good? Because he's not good. Okay, there. I think it starts with 
for Chapman, you start with the 2016 run with the Cubs, because I think that was really his coming out party when the uh, Yankees traded him to the Cubs. But I, that's the only time, I think it was really his only most dominant year, because anytime he had to go get it done, would you say he was good in 2019 when, he, when Altuve took him deep in the LCS? Was that the downfall? So let's say it's 2016 to 2019, three years. Yeah, but, but Altuve was no, wearing I'm, a buzzer. I'm not going to have that slander even jokingly on this podcast. Uh, uh, but no, in all seriousness, and so this year he yeah. basically quit on the team. And now he's – did he officially sign his contract I think with so. the Royals? I think he did. But it, I think that just shows the difference in Velo nowadays where, as you said, Billy had one pitch, and there weren't a lot of guys who could touch that pitch because it was 100 miles an hour when he was at his best – and, and Chapman also throws 100, and there's a lot of guys that throw that hard nowadays where that didn't used to be the case. And so a guy like Chapman, he had to have really good secondary and, and third you know third pitches to work off of that fastball to make you late on it, right? He could mix in a good slider, a good changeup, whatever it is, so that way when he throws the heater, you, you're thinking about those other pitches versus Wagner could really sit back and rely on that heater because you, weren't see, you were seeing – uh, Shane Reynolds sitting at 87 for most of the game. Then we're going to go to Billy Wagner. You know, there's there's just such a huge difference where the Yankees are going from Cole, who's sitting at 97, 98. Then we're going to go to, uh, you know, one of their other relievers who sit at 96, 97. Then we're going to go to Chapman, who's 100. So I just don't think that he can last that way. And here's the, and here's the problem with uh, with. Well, closers in particular, but pitchers nowadays. And I want, and and this is something that blew my mind. Do you know what the average fastball velocity is in the major? Today, I'd say probably 93, 94. This 93. When I was a kid, if you were a lefty and you threw 90, you were a hard thrower. Jim Deshays, you know, could bring it in the high 80s and we're, oh man, power pitcher. And and I could you know tell this story. I tell the story to everybody. I actually have a game worn Barzilla Astros jersey because my second cousin pitched one third of an inning with the Houston Astros in two thousand six. Uh, his name is Philip Barzilla, and he came up. He, he went to JUCO and then he transferred to Rice. He was Rice's closer back when Rice was actually a good baseball team. Uh, they aren't now, but you know they used to be. Uh, and he came up through the system, got called up for 15 days. He couldn't break 89. Um, he ended up pitching for Team Italy in the World Baseball Classic. He's he's about as Italian as I am, which you know that's my great grandfather that came over. So I think in order to pitch for Team Italy, if your last name ends in a vowel, and you had Chef Boyardee once, you know you can you can play for Team Italy. But, I mean, that's you look at closers, and when, when the Astros gave Presley their extension, that made me nervous because relievers just don't last. You know, when they gave Montero that huge contract. This that, one made, that one makes me no, more nervous than Presley's. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's the same thing. It's like how long are these guys going to be good? Because the thing is, and that's why I'm actually okay with letting Verlander go, 
because Verlander on the gun towards the playoffs was starting to sit down to 94, 93. And when you're throwing a league average fastball, that's the worst place you want to live. I'd rather throw 90 than 93. Because if you're throwing night, if you're throwing league average fastball, yeah, we saw we saw what happened when his mechanics weren't right, and he because yeah. Verlander lives in the top of the zone. If if Verlander can work at your letters, he's going to win. If it starts getting below that, and he's not throwing ninety eight, he's going to get taken deep. And that's you know we saw it happen in game one against uh, Seattle when he wasn't right, and after I think it was like the third inning in, in the World Series of Game One as well, he he fell apart when he couldn't get the ball up in the zone. Uh, and, and his fastball wasn't where he needed it to be. But real quick, I'm, I'm going to throw one more name at you that I, I think the percentage that this gentleman received is an absolute travesty. Um, he, in my opinion, was probably one of the most feared right-handed hitters for a span of 10 to 15 years. Um, not a great defender, but again, one of the best hitters in the game for a period of 10 to 15 years, only got 33.2% of the ballot, and that's Man Ram, Manny Ramirez. Um, he's got a lot of the the sexy numbers, right? More than 500 home runs. He's got 522, I'm sorry, 555 career homers. He's got, um, you know, a batting average career of 312. He slugged 585 for his career. His OPS for his career is 996, OPS plus 154. So, you know, 2,574 hits. So he's got some sexy numbers, but, you know, again, not even close to a good defender and somebody who did some stupid stuff in public, too. And I believe one of the few two-time uh, PED that tests. is true. PED tests do hurt the uh, do hurt the results, but we've seen other guys who have overcome it. And you know, it's just to me, that's one that I don't know. Well, well, this is what what kills me. Need to stop saying that phrase because I say that phrase a lot. What gets me about guys like Manny Ramirez is is people will, and, and this is where the writers rear their ugly head. He was not press friendly. Not a great guy to cover. And, and, but here's another trivia question because Astros fans know this. Who holds the record for postseason home runs? Manny Ramirez now, but Jose Altuve will hopefully soon be passing that number. Yep, he is gaining on him. In fact, uh, I think Altuve that's, sits in second right now. That's such a, that's such a, but it, I don't know. I like the stat, but it's also very cherry-picked, right? Because it's all about opportunity. Bernie Williams was the holder of that, that record for quite some period of time just because the Yankees were in the playoffs every year. There's going to be a lot of Astros that collect, you know, top playoff numbers if they were on the team for an extended period of time just because they go to the postseason so much. So, I don't know if you can uh, – the writers, obviously, they do care about postseason numbers. The writers have, have shown that it matters, except in this case, which is weird. Well, and what I do in, my, in both books, but I, particularly the second book, is I, I use something I call the Hall of Fame Index. And I'm not going to go into it. But basically, I only use that as a jumping-off point. When you start to look at guys that are borderline – you start to look at things like awards. You start to look at things like the postseason. Because, I mean, the thing is, is, it, is 
Jose Altuve, if you want to just look at Jose Altuve, for instance, do you think if he were to retire today, would he be as good as Craig Biggio? In my opinion, I think he already is the best second baseman in Astros history. I think if you look at a lot of people when they say put your all-time Astros lineup together, the fact that most of them, most of them are trying to squeeze Craig Biggio in at catcher so they can have Jose Altuve at second base tells you everything you need to know. Well, and so, but the, here's the key question. Why do you say that? World Series wins, number one. MVP, number two. Uh, I think Jose Altuve affects the team in a better way than Craig Biggio. I love Craig Biggio. Craig Biggio was one of my favorite players growing up. I wrote him a letter when I was a kid, sent him his rookie card. He responded to my letter, signed the card, sent it back. I was sold. I, I went to Cooperstown, drove to Cooperstown for Craig Biggio's Hall of Fame inauguration. I don't think he was a net positive on the team this last five years in Houston. I mean, he was a defensive liability in center field when they moved him there because they brought Jeff Kent in. Then he was a defensive liability in left field when they brought um, Carlos Beltran in to play center that same season. Uh, eventually, they moved him back to second base. I love Craig Biggio, but defensively, nowhere near as good as Jose Altuve. I think Jose covers more ground. And offensively, all he had to do was throw a slider on the outside part to start anywhere near the outside corner and break away from it. And Biggio was going to swing and a miss three times at it. Oh, yeah. The outside slider, I think 20 years he couldn't figure out to lay off that pitch. Well, I think he got worse as he got older because he well, had to he start started. Well, once he got rid of the leg kick late in his career, he was a little like the last two or three years, he got rid of the giant leg kick and he kind of had a little bit of a revival the last couple seasons, but he he really had some down years toward the end. And I think this is where, as Astro fans, uh, we are starting to join the select company now that we have a couple of world championships. Because, you know, when you look at, say, a Dodger fan or a Cardinal fan or a Giants fan, they've got multiple championships in their history they can go back to and they can sit there and, and look at these things. The thing is that, and, and this is where the Hall of Fame comes in because it's the Hall of Fame. It's not the Hall of Stats. It's the Hall of Fame. We love Jose Altuve probably more than we love Craig Biggio, and we love Craig Biggio. We probably love, you know, maybe I don't know if we love Springer on that or Correa on that. I think one. an interesting one is um, the Yuli love now versus Bagwell. I think Yuli Yuli is a beloved yeah. player in Houston, and you know what? Maybe if he played the length of time that Bagwell had, he could have accrued some Hall of Fame stats. But at the end of the day. I think every Astros fan would agree with you that Yuli's not a Hall of Famer, but I don't know if they all agree that he was not a better first baseman than Bagwell. But I think you and I both know Jeff Bagwell was a better first baseman than Yuli Gurriel. Oh yeah, I hope so. Um, and then you know Alex Bregman's going to be an interesting you know one since he's been you know with the team the whole time through that. You know he and Altuve, in fact are now the last two Astros to be with them throughout the whole McCullers, run. McCullers as well. You know, from 17 to McCullers as well. But, you know, the, as far as position players, you know, so the reason I say this, and I bring this back to Manny Ramirez, 
you could say that Manny Ramirez was lucky to play on a lot of good teams. And, and sure, he was. Um, you know, Cleveland was good when he was there. Boston was good when he was there. Dodgers were good when he was there. But you could also sit there and claim that those teams wouldn't have been nearly as good. Right, and look what there. he did for the other hitters in those lineups when he was there. You know, he's a lot of people credit his appearance in Boston with the emergence of David Ortiz. David Ortiz will credit Manny Ramirez for making or helping him become the hitter that he is. Um, I think you could see his effect on his presence helped Albert Bell immensely. Obviously, Albert Bell juiced, but kind of got a lot of pitches to hit because Man Ram is sitting there as well. Uh, then you go to the Dodgers, and you know there's a, there's a lot of guys in that lineup that were real young in their career, hadn't had a lot of postseason success yet, uh, and Manny Ramirez kind of helped guide those guys through some early postseason appearances to where they do eventually win a World Series in, in 2020, you know, albeit a Mickey Mouse World Series. But, you know, they did get to host that that trophy above their head. And I think a lot of that goes back to that early postseason experience they got with a guy like Manny Ramirez kind of teaching them how to be prepared, how to get ready for the postseason. Then those guys go on, they age, and they help bring another group of young guys in that started this 2017, 2018, 19, 20 run where the, the Dodgers have been there every year. Well, in comparing them, and, and, you know, we go six degrees of separation, you mentioned David Ortiz. So let's look at David Ortiz. He's a, he's a DH. He played maybe a handful of games at first base. Not many. He was mentioned in the Mitchell report. So I, I you know, don't think he ever had an official positive test, but it's linked to him. He denied it. It is what it is. But David Ortiz was a no-doubt Hall of Famer, but if you compare their numbers, especially the regular season numbers, there's no comparison. Manny Ramirez is a better player. But David Ortiz is a postseason hero. He was integral in that, you know, that yeah. great comeback when they're down 3-0. Big part of all three World Series. I'm sorry, the two of the three World Series wins for the Red Sox because the third one came after he retired. But I think also, too, David Ortiz is a gregarious human being. The press loves David Ortiz, and David Ortiz loves the media, right? David Ortiz is now one of the media, but he's always been good with those guys. And, and to go back to your point that Man Ram was an a-hole at the end of the day, David Ortiz wasn't. And and I think the voting shows, you know, sometimes those guys who take the interview, those guys who sit there at the podium and answer all those questions, those guys who will give you the inside scoop, if you're borderline, it's going to benefit you at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and you know, a couple of other guys who are on that ballot, um, you know, Jeff Kent, you know, we, we brought him up earlier, but not, you know, not directly. And Gary Sheffield's another guy. And those two are the same in that. And a quick story about uh, Jeff Kent. So apparently Jeff Kent, his first uh, spring training with the Astros. He walks up to Jeff Bagwell, and I don't know why he says this, what motivates him to say this, but he says, my goal in baseball is not to have any friends in baseball once I'm done. And Bagwell supposedly told him, so far, so good. He, I mean, he was the one guy that could make a Giants clubhouse unite behind Barry Bonds. I mean, so you're talking about just, you know, legendary jackass. 
Kurt Schilling's another guy. Post-career. A conservative jackass, if there ever was one. And he's a Hall of Fame player. Come on. I mean, and, and so to me, you know, what you do in terms of how you interact with the press shouldn't matter. Whether you have weird, you know, political opinions, maybe it makes you a bad human being, but what did you do as a player? I mean, I don't know if you've ever followed Aubrey Huff. Unfortunately, uh, I did, and then um, (laughs) he got blocked real quick because he is the definition of a disgusting human being. But, you know, he doesn't have the Hall of Fame numbers anywhere close. And also probably part of one of the worst Astro trades. That one, uh, Ben Um, Zobrist for Aubrey Huff was – and I remember we were. He had some. He had a run. You know, he had. A, he got hot for a little bit there. He and uh, I don't know if you remember Ty Wigington's piggies that used to hang out when we had uh, Ty Wigington. Yeah. Some of the dark ages there, but him and and then I remember we were supposed to get excited when we traded for Randy Wolf at the deadline one year. That was supposed to be the big move. But yeah, uh, you're, you're right with Aubrey Huff. He has shown himself to be just a piece of garbage after retiring, but. If his numbers were Hall of Fame worthy, that shouldn't matter, right? At the end of the day, that should not matter. And I think, you know, the the stories of Ty Cobb, obviously, I I don't think he was as big of an asshole as he's been made out to be. But I think he's kind of a great example where you had someone who maybe wasn't the best person in the world, definitely wasn't the best person in the world, maybe not as bad as we thought, but his numbers were Hall of Fame worthy, and he's in the Hall of Fame. That's what... It's about it's about what you did on the field, and that's it. But as, as this discussion has shown, um, I feel like we've gotten away from that a little bit. Uh, and I feel like, as someone who watched a lot of baseball in the '90s and 2000s, to me, there was no better center fielder in the game in his prime than Andrew Jones. Uh, there was very few bats that were as feared as Gary Sheffield, and. You know, when the Astros went and got Jeff Kent, that was a big deal because he was a home run hitting second baseman at a time that that didn't exist. Do I think all those guys are Hall of Famers? No, I don't think Jeff Kent should be there after after more consideration just because the only thing that made him a Hall of Famer in people's eyes was he was the all-time home run leader for second baseman. It was just because guys who played second typically were your punch and Judy hitters. The times have changed, and I think... There's several guys in the game today who are going to break Jeff Kent's record and doesn't mean that they're Hall of Famers. But Andrew Jones should be a Hall of Famer, and I think Gary Sheffield's, to me, right there on on, on the borderline because he was he was so good. Yeah, and I... That's what, you know, Jim Edmonds is Edmonds, guy. Edmonds's glove should get him there alone. I, I When you talk about great center fielders, I think Edmonds was defensively just as good as Jones for longer. I think Jones at his peak was probably a little bit better, but when he went to LA, he just couldn't sustain it versus Jim Edmonds was so good in center for so long. I think if you look at the numbers, defensive numbers, Andrew Jones was just probably the only historical comp is Willie Mays. Um, That's that's a pretty high comp. It's a pretty high comp, yeah. But the thing is what Jones does, and this is where 
when you pay attention to numbers, it's different because Edmonds had more web gems because Edmonds had to do diving spectacular plays. Jones was there making that catch easy. Um, Edmonds is the one, you know, diving back, you know, with the ball going over his head. And, you know, some of those catches were ridiculous. But, you know, you're right. The thing is, I think with Jones, and I think he, he's the same thing that plagues him as some other guys. Like, I think um, the guy, the comp I would have with him, ironically, is Barry Larkin. Barry Larkin's in the Hall of Fame. But when you look at Barry Larkin, you're thinking, man, if he could have just stayed healthy, how great would he have been? Well, he was already great. He would have just been better. Jones is kind of the same way because he came up at 19. So he has a good maybe 11, 12 years. All of a sudden, he craps out. Well, if he had made his debut at 23 or 24, 12 years, 35, okay. But you're looking at it like, man, you're 30. Why do you suck? Yeah. And that's where, you know. That's I, think I think you're right there. He, he peaked very young in his career, sustained it for a period of time. Um, and, you know, when he got paid, his production went down considerably. He got that big fat contract. Um, also didn't maintain the weight. I'm not sure. You know, what went with what, but he, he definitely, his playing weight went up um, in L.A. versus what it was in Atlanta. And I, I do think he had some nice years with the Yankees uh, playing right field for them and, and DHing and things along that nature. But he's just, he was never able to recapture that magic he had in center for the Braves. I mean, I think Edmonds is in our mind so much because, as in my mind, there is no bigger Astro killer than Jim Edmonds. He, at least in my generation, was the biggest Astro killer of of my life, both offensively and defensively. So I think that's why he sticks in our brain so much. But thinking back on some of those series where the Braves took care of us pretty quickly, there was a lot of Andrew Jones wizardry in center field in those in those games as well. Oh, that, that 2003 the one up the wall. Uh, game seven, the game seven yeah. where he robs Osmus. I mean, that was just a that just broke our backs. Uh, it just demoralized us in that game. And you know, and this funny is that series included so many, you know, guys that we you know that we brought up, and one guy that we haven't yet. We're talking Alberto. Uh, oh, oh Beltron. Okay, Beltron. yeah, Beltron's a tough one. And I think this is going to be the first litmus test for the 2017 Astros roster. Um, Because I think if you look at, I don't know. I I don't know if Carlos Beltran is a Hall of Famer without the Astros stuff. I really don't. He's got a lot of really good numbers, but he doesn't have, um, he doesn't have any of those sexy numbers that automatically get you in, right? He's, he's just short of 3000 hits. He's just short of 500 homers. Um, you know, he's got a, a pretty good OPS at 837. He's, you know, doesn't hit 300 for his career. His on-base percentage for his career is only 350. He's another one of those guys that, at least in my opinion, is remembered for his postseason heroics a little bit more than his, you know, total production as a player. Yeah, in the, according to my index, he's easily in. Uh, but that's when you're looking at numbers like war. 
and that and the voters you know a lot of those old hat voters that we were talking about you know they don't they don't even know what war is and, and so beltron i think what happens with beltron is even if we remove the scandal which is hard to do the pro he has that same problem where you're sitting there especially after he left houston the first time he had a string of seasons where he just could not stay healthy. And the Mets didn't make the playoffs. The Mets weren't. A, he almost disappeared off the face of the earth for a little bit um, just because the Mets weren't competitive for that time period. And you're right. He wasn't healthy. Um, and it wasn't until he started bouncing around, I feel like, almost as a hired gun every year at the trade deadline of who's going to win the Carlos Beltran sweepstakes this year for their playoff run that you really start, started to see him reemerge uh as, as someone that people really wanted and desired on their team but i mean he went from the from the cardinals to the yankees to the rangers to the giants i mean if you're making a playoff run you're trying to get carlos beltran yeah and that's um and that's an unfortunate thing when you're dealing with injuries because when you look at a guy and i remember when the 2004 negotiations were coming out and this is when you know he was a scott tim herpera <sighs> And Scott, and Scott Boris makes the – he's Willie Mays comp. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, you know, being a Scott Boris statistician has got to be on a level like being a photographer for the National Enquirer. You know, you're, you're sitting there massaging you're, – you're putting, you know, finding a fat body and a, a thin actress and you're one of – you know, superimpose the head. And so, Oh my God, look at how much she's got, you know, that's gotta be a horrible life. If you're like any kind of a serious photographer and, and the same thing with stats, you know, how, how many drinks do you have to down before you can sit there and, and press send on. Yeah. Beltran's as good as Willie Mays. <laughs> but the thing is, is that in that, but that comp killed him because you're expecting 2004 Beltron, and that just doesn't happen. I mean, that was his that was his year. And if you had had an overall MLB MVP, if they could have done that, you know, where you you know, meld two leagues together, he might have been it in that year. Because remember, he's traded from the Royals, you know, midseason. But you know, because I remember the first game he played, he stole a home run you know, yeah, beyond against. The yeah, and he had a. I thought we got him early with the Cubs. Uh, he played against this first series was against the Cubs, if I feel um, correct with that. I remember uh, some like right, like he flew in, and had to start the first day game right there. And you're like, okay, this is this is the guy we just traded for. Um, that's, a, but that's a great series, you know, that seven game series because you had so many guys. You know, we had you know Kent, you had Bagwell, you had Biggio. Uh, you had Beltron on the Houston side. You had Pujols. You had Edmonds. You had Roland. Um, yeah, you had Roland. I don't think you had Yadi. No, it was still Mike. Mike Matheny was the catcher for that team. Uh, and you had, uh, I believe, um, Eckstein was the shortstop there. You had uh, Larry Walker was yeah, playing right field for them at that point, uh, and then left field. Uh, that's going to drive me crazy, but uh can't remember left field for that team. It was, I think they like, they had a, a platoon out there, but. Um, but it's, it's just crazy. And, and, you know, of course we have Lance Berkman, 
also yep. part he, of that. Team. He's one that is interesting it's to me that he fell off the ballot as quickly as he did for his prowess as a switch hitter. He's a guy that I think um, I put him in a similar basket as I put Dale Murphy. Because Dale Murphy was, I mean, I grew up watching him because when you had cable, you had TBS, you had WGN. So I could literally watch every Braves baseball game. Even before I could watch an Astros game on TV, you could watch the Braves, you could watch the Cubs. So from about 1979 to 1987, he was one of the best players in baseball. And then he just completely fell off a map. And, and that's why he's not in the Hall of Fame. He, he's two MVPs. He's one of the few guys to have multiple MVP awards and not be in the Hall of Fame, uh, along with Roger Maris and Barry Bonds and you know a few others. But Bergman is kind of the same way. He had about that eight or nine year really good. And then all of a sudden... See, I, I don't think that's a fair narrative for Bergman. I think he really only had one bad half a season. That's after he was traded to the Yankees. He he went to the Rangers and helped them get to the World Series. Then he goes to the Cardinals, and he helped them win a World Series. I, I think he... I think he just didn't have a compilation. He didn't have that 500 homers. I, I think that's the biggest thing. If you're a power hitter and you don't get to 500, you're not getting in. And even though I, I believe he's first, maybe second all-time in switch hit home runs, that particular stat didn't matter to the voters. It was that he didn't get 500. You know, he, he stunk it up when he got to New York. I'll be the first one to admit he was not good as a Yankee. But he went to the Rangers the next year. And got and helped get them to the World Series, even though they eventually lost. Then he goes to the Cardinals, and he helped them win a World Series, playing the outfield for both those teams. Well, he's behind Mickey Mantle, all time and switch at home. Yeah, okay, well, that's a tough one to pass uh, there. Yeah, well, and so what was that? 2012 for the Cardinals. I think so. Yeah. Because that was he was that was his, that. that was he retired right after that. Uh, Pujols went to the Angels. I think he came. I think he tried to sign with the Rangers. After that, I think tried to go back, and it just didn't. It just didn't happen. It doesn't work because there was there was a time when they were talking about, hey, let's bring him back to Houston. You know, let him retire. You know, be um, since we were in the American League at that point, we could have him DH, and. and it just didn't work out. But if you look at, you know, so his career, he's drafted, I believe, in 98 or 99. And his first full year was either 2000 or 2000. 2000. Rookie of the year, sixth place finish. So, um, and then he went on a tear from 2001. Um, Really, through he was an all-star level player through 2011. So 10 years, he was an all-star in 2011 and finished seventh in MVP voting uh, in the year the Cardinals won the World Series. He had 301, 31 homers, drove in 94, um, and was, again, an all-star in a World Series appearance. You're right, though. And there's a, there's a lot of those guys. And if you look at the book, and I and I break it down by position because I hate like shortstops and center. I'm not going to compare shortstops to center fielder, but there's a lot of those guys, particularly when you look at outfielders, who, if I could give them just one additional year, I could get them over the top. Um, 
Jimmy Wynn is a great example of that. If you look at his career, um, he was, you know, he had a few good years with the Dodgers um, after he left Houston. And of course, you know, his Houston numbers are just dwarfed by the Astrodome. I mean, that was just a horrible place to hit. Uh, Cesar Cedeno is another one. If he doesn't have that ankle injury, um, you could, you know, certain guys like Don Mattingly, you know, if you could sit there and give him another year or two. So there's a lot of guys who are just on the cusp. And what, what sucks about Berkman is I don't know if I would have voted for him, but he damn sure should have stayed on the ballot. I mean, him getting 2 or 3% is just an absolute... I think it just, for a long time, uh, it still somewhat exists, but you know, at least while I was growing up and while Berkman was playing, there was a pretty big media bias, especially in baseball, where people did not pay attention to the Houston Astros. So if you were not watching Astros baseball on a consistent basis... I don't think you really knew how good Lance Berkman was. So if you just go look at his baseball reference page and see that he's just short of a lot of those big sexy stats, doesn't have 3,000 hits, doesn't have 500 homers, you know, not a 300 career hitter. At the end of the day, you know, he's again, he's just side of all those. 293 career hitter for Berkman, 366 on the homers, um, and total hits he had... Um, he, he didn't get to 3,000 on hits. He's you know didn't even get to 2,000. He's 1,905. So when you just look at his baseball reference page, he's one of those players that doesn't tell the full story. You're looking at a guy who was drafted as a first baseman, coming out of Rice University, who played center field when he came up, played right field, then eventually replaced Bagwell at first base at a very high level. Um, that to me, goes into it. And, you know, maybe we're homers. Maybe because we're from Houston, uh, our appreciation of the Astros is a little bit higher um, than some other people out there. But I think you're right. He deserved a chance to try and work his way up that ballot. And, um, you know, it's sad he didn't get that opportunity. But I think, um, you know, realistically, (laughs) we're going on two hours. And, uh, yeah, I can hear you. There you go. Can you hear me now? Okay, so um, the last point that I wanted to make, because I know we're running up against it, as you just said, I think the way that you help out the Lance Berkmans is the ballot just has way... Number one, you either need to increase the number of people that you can vote for, or you need to severely limit who's on the ballot. Like in recent years, they've had guys like Placido Polanco on the Hall of Fame ballot. You had Jim Deshays on the Hall of Fame ballot. R.A. Dickey was on the Hall of Fame ballot. I think it's anybody who has eligibility, period. Well, it doesn't a, matter if well, you're there's a screening, There's a screening group because, yeah, you have to meet 10 years. And, you know, you have to have some basic qualifications. But come on. There's some guy. Come on. And if, we, we don't need to put R.A. Dickey's name on the, on the Hall of Fame ballot. He had two years for his knuckleball dance, I mean, and that I, was it. Yeah, great guy. Uh, apparently didn't have a UCL, so, you know, yeah. hey, kudos to you. Um, but, yeah, if you could limit it to, like, 20 guys and sit there and say, okay, now you vote for 10, okay, now we're talking. But when you jam 40 people on a ballot, you know, my goodness. And, you know, and, and yeah, 
I should be smart enough not to vote for Placido Polanco. If I'm voting for him, then, you know, somebody should, you know, either. But there's going to be some Phillies sports writers who vote for Placido Polanco because he played for the Phillies and he won a World Series with them. And that's and I think you're getting to the root of the problem is there's going to be the guys, the Homer guys, who throw the votes in for those people. And because they're voting for him, that's another one of these legitimate candidates that he can't vote for. Right. And I don't think he got really any votes. Like, I think Jim Deshaies got one vote from John Lopez. Uh, used to write for the Chronicles, now on Sports 610 uh, Radio. But, yeah, if, if I'm, and this is, gets back to the whole thing, if I turn in a blank ballot, I'm done. Take my ballot away. Yeah, I don't need to vote anymore. If, if I, I mean, R.A. Dickey got a vote. Mike Napoli got a vote. Bronson Arroyo got a vote. Houston Street got a vote. I mean, these are guys who you're wasting one of your votes just because he was on your team. Right. And, and of course, we don't, I mean, it's probably a secret ballot because, you know, nobody's going to publicize. Hey, I voted for Houston. Who would trust your sports writing opinion when you cast a Hall of Fame vote for Houston Street or R.A. Dickey? I mean, come on. Hey, he won a Cy Young. <laughs> Mark Davis, you know, let me throw his name out there, you know, if we're going to do that, you know. Or vote for Mike Scott. You know how many Houston sports yeah. writers would vote for Mike Scott? If, you know when he's on a ballot. I mean, and so, yeah, we can do things to clean it up. We can do things where we can sit there and say, "Hey, if you haven't covered the sport for ten years, come on." That too would help. That would say, you know what? Just there, are, there are situations. You know, to kind of link this to the political side of things, there are plenty of times. You know, in votes in Congress or, or the Senate where you abstain from voting. And, you know, that's just, you just need a less number of votes to hit, hit the percentage at that point because, you know, 15 people abstain from this vote. This is a scenario, this is a scenario where that works. You know, if you want to, if you don't think there's a single guy worthy on this one, okay, whatever, you're, you're a moron, but okay, abstain. And now you only need, you know, a few less to hit that 75% threshold. Yeah, if you voted for nobody, come on, let's, let's, let's get this thing out of here. Or what you could simply do is sit there and say, okay, you voted for nobody, you can keep your ballot, but that's not going to count as a ballot. Yeah, as I say, or you're Marco Rubio and you're just not in the Senate at that moment because you have the worst attendance record in modern history. Um, yeah, that's maybe maybe uh, maybe next week we'll talk about attendance. But Scott, this has been fun as always. Um, real quick, how can uh, if people want to follow you or, or or maybe get a chance to read some of your work on a daily basis? How can they find that? Uh, the Hall of Fame Index dot com, uh, where I, it's not daily blog, but you know probably two or three days a week, and then also uh, the Battle Red blog. Um, Huge news, obviously, with D'Amico Ryans. And so uh, I'm going to be all over that page uh, as B-Ball retired. And I am on Twitter. If you want to find me, I'm at Tim underscore Costello 10. Um, coming in hot off the keyboard here lately. Um, again, just a trigger warning if you follow me. A lot of hot takes coming out of there. But this has been a blast as always. Uh, we will be coming to you on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Zencaster. Uh, every Wednesday, the podcast will be released. So do us a favor and hit subscribe. 
give us a review. See if you can hit those five stars for us. It really helps us uh, appear in people's feeds and help the podcast grow. This has been the Snap Hook. I've been Tim Costello. He is always Scott Barzilla. And we'll see you guys next week.